If you missed the first two seasons of the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast, we covered some great players and great games in season one, and we redrafted all the drafts from 1996 to 2010 in season two. This is season three. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. The Book of Basketball podcast is also brought to you by The Ringer and The Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find my podcast, The Bill Simmons Podcast, as well as over 30 podcasts on sports, pop culture, politics, narrative podcast, a whole bunch of other things. I hope you're checking out all of those. So if you remember in season one, we hit a bunch of the famous players and games from the last 35 years, plus Bill Russell as well. Season two, we redrafted every draft from 1996 to 2010, which really started on my podcast and then just became something we were doing when there was no basketball during the pandemic. Now we're back to our roots here. Here's season three. We are going to do players only, people on my Hall of Fame pyramid, people who resonate differently in 2020 than maybe they did when they played. So that's the conceit for season three. Very excited for this. My name is Bill Simmons. This is The Book of Basketball. Unlike Shaq, Kobe's gonna attack. Larry, she's at three, quads playing that D. LeBron hits him with that steal, and yet all we feel. Pass it to Luke, yeah, he's gonna juke, yeah, yeah. It's a book of basketball, 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 yeah. The Book of Basketball, Allen Iverson. As the years and decades pass, we'll see Allen Iverson and Bob Cousy picked apart by an army of stack guys looking to undermine their careers, and that's fine. Just know that Iverson passed a season ticket test for nearly a decade. That's when your season tickets arrive in the mail. You invariably check the schedule, mark certain can't-miss games and stick those dates in a calendar. You measure those can't-miss games by rivalries, superstars, incoming rookies, and the murky, I-need-to-see-that-guy factor, and that's it. From 1998 to 2007, Allen Iverson always made my season ticket list, so I don't give a crap about Iverson's win shares, how his per-36 numbers weren't that good, how he has the lowest shooting percentage of any top 50 all-time score, whatever else you're throwing at me. Every ticket to a Y2K Iverson game guaranteed a professional first-class performance. No different from reservations at a five-star restaurant or hotel. There's no way he was taller than five foot ten. He was listed at six feet, right, Jay Adande? Yes, six feet. Five, nine and a half, five, ten max. I can five eleven. 
Rip 5'11, okay. Well, he was under six feet, which made him even more breathtaking in person. Iverson squeaking by everybody. Reverse layup. Oh, wow. He took implausible angles on his drives. I still have never seen anything quite like his angles. He drained an obscene number of layups and floaters in traffic. Iverson twisting shot, and it counts. Well, as I say, you know Iverson's going to make a big shot. He had a knack for going nine for 24, but somehow always making the two biggest shots of the game. Here's Allen for the tie. Every time he attacked the basket, it was like watching an undersized running back ram into the line of scrimmage for five yards of pop. And he played with a fuck you intensity that only MJ ever truly matched. Maybe Kobe too, but I have Kobe third in that rankings. For years and years, the league's most intimidating player was not taller than Taylor Swift. I always found it interesting that Iverson in his first eight All-Star games averaged 28 minutes of playing time and that he played crunch time in every close one because even his temporary coaches never risk pissing him off. So he arrived during the NBA's Too Much, Too Fast, Too Soon era, the league's first real link to a hip-hop culture that already exploded with Tupac, Biggie, Snoop, NWA, everybody else. And that led to a generational twinge to anti-Iverson criticisms from fans and media members who fixated on his infamous aversion to practice. I supposed to be the franchise player and we're in here talking about practice. Practice, practice, practice. His clashes with coaches, his occasional ball hogging, his controversial past, even cornrows and tattoos, they had a problem with that. And yet, those same detractors downplayed the unforgettable thrill of watching him play in person or how his peers respected and revered Iverson almost immediately. Those detractors, they glossed over his incompetent front office, his subpar supporting cast, a revolving door of coaches in Philly. Hey, I'm going to try to make you name all the Philly coaches he had later. You won't be able to get to it. There's two you won't get. Those detractors did not care that he was one of the most influential black athletes ever. A true trendsetter who resonated with the African-American community in ways that even MJ couldn't duplicate. They weren't enamored by one of the most fascinating complex athletes of my lifetime. A legendary partier and a devoted family man. A loyal teammate who hogged the ball. A featherweight who carried himself like the heavyweight champ. An intimidating competitor who was always the smallest guy out there. An ex-con with an ever-changing entourage who also ranked as one of the most intuitive, self-aware, articulate superstars in any sport. And yeah, his field goal percentage, it wasn't so great. He definitely took too many shots, whatever. 50 years from now, I hope people realize Iverson had better balance than everyone else. Iverson behind his back, yes! More coordinated than everyone else. Michael trying to stay with him. He goes left with his right, and he comes up with a jumper. That he took a superhuman pounding and kept getting up and that he goes down as one of basketball's all-time athletic super freaks. Iverson, wow, right there, what injured left leg. Did you know that Iverson was one of Virginia's best high school football players ever? Who else did Virginia give us, Jay? Michael Vick, Lawrence Taylor, is that enough? Yeah, pretty good. Iverson could have been a world-class soccer player, boxer, center fielder, tennis player, any track and field sport, you name it. Every time the World Cup rolls around, I always find myself thinking about which NBA players would have excelled at soccer. I know you love this game. Guess what? Iverson would have been the best soccer player ever. It's indisputable. I'm taking him over everybody else. Imagine him careening around as a midfielder like Messi. It's all over. It would have been ridiculous. He picked basketball, and Iverson wrecked his body on and off the court while thriving at the highest possible level historically. The man deserves credit for dragging a mediocre Sixers team to the 0-1 finals when so many scoring machines had failed before him. George Gervin, 
Bob McAdoo, Dominique Wilkins. You might've heard of a current version of this, James Harden. None of them could do it. None of them could get to the finals. Allen Iverson did it. And for the first time in 18 years, the Sixers are going back to the NBA finals. And if you watch game seven in the 79 Bullet Spurs series and game seven in the 2001 Bucks Sixers series, there's one big difference between Gervin and Iverson, two spectacular offensive players. That difference, how they carried themselves. Gervin never gave the sense that the game was life or death. Iverson goes into foxhole mode, his ferocity lifting his teammates, energizing the crowd. And that was a swagger that separated him from everyone else after Jordan retired. For most of his 20s, somehow, he was the league's single most menacing player. He had a darker edge that belonged to nobody else, the switch that instantly transformed him into a character from The Wire. He could have been in The Wire. He could have done like a two-episode cameo, I feel like, right? Uh, I remember, this is a true story. I remember attending one Boston Philly game when Iverson was whistled for a technical. He yelped in disbelief. He followed the referee toward the score table. And he finally screamed, fuck you, at the top of his lungs at the guy. And the official whirled around and he pulled his whistle toward his mouth for a second technical. And they were like 25 feet away from me so I could see everything up close. And I swear in my daughter's life, the following moment happened. As the ref started to blow the whistle, Iverson's eyes widened and he moved angrily toward the poor guy, almost like someone getting written up for a parking ticket who decides he's just gonna punch out the beater bed. And for a split second, there was real violence in the air. The rattled official lowered his whistle. No second technical. Kept him in the game by sheer force of Iverson's personality. And look, I'm not condoning what happened because it was a frightening moment. And I specifically remember thinking, I am frightened. But I haven't seen a basketball player bully a referee like that before or since. It was like watching the biggest offensive lineman in an intramural game intimidating a 130-pound freshman ref. And that goes back to the seeing him in person thing. At his peak, Iverson played with a compelling, hostile, bloodthirsty energy that nobody else had. He was relentless in every sense of the word. Alpha dog, warrior, tornado, you name it. He was so quick and coordinated. It defies description. And he was enough of a lunatic that officials and teammates occasionally cowered in his presence. And none of this makes total sense unless you watched him live. So could you win a title if Iverson was your best player and you didn't have a franchise big man? No way. Could you win a title with Iverson as your second best player in crunch time score? Yeah, maybe. Would you pay to see him in his prime? In the words of Mr. Big, absolutely. I will remember Allen Iverson, and so will Jay Adande, who's here, who covered him basically the whole time. Uh, the seeing him in person thing is the thing that gets lost as we, as you know, the years pass and you just have YouTube videos and Twitter and things like that. You covered him at every single point of his career. I wrote once upon a time, if I could pick any modern athlete to spend a week with in his prime for a magazine feature, I would pick Allen Iverson, hands down, that's the number one choice. But you actually spent time with him. Is that a fair dream to have? Was he that interesting? I don't know if you could survive that though, Bill. That's the question. <laughs> a week with Iverson, I'm not sure you'd want to go all the places he went to. And mm. I don't think you could hang. I'm not saying this about you. I'm saying this about <laughs> anybody most sports journalists. I don't think you could hang with Allen Iverson. But to the point about the excitement, and first of all, thank you for having me here. Oh, it's the, great. The point about the experience of watching Allen Iverson, and the most time I spent around him was at Georgetown. Just about every game he played at Georgetown while I was at the Washington Post and I was on the Georgetown basketball beat. And it was an event 
and an experience every single time because once a game, he would do something that you'd never seen before. And it was captivating. The one that sticks out to me, they're at Syracuse at the Orange Dome, or the Carrier Dome, excuse me. And he gets the ball and it says Syracuse on the court. And he went from the S to the E in that Syracuse so fast. It was like he was speed reading. And I'll <laughs> never forget that. There, there was a big Monday. You know, Georgetown played in so many big games, ESPN yeah. game, big Monday game against UConn. And he gets the ball in the backcourt and he's dribbling, dribbling. And then it turns into a runway. And he just goes down the lane and dunks. You might have seen that one. Yeah. And the place goes nuts, the old Capitol Center. and But every game, there was a moment. And you talked about he had his angles. His signature move was that that twisting layup, over his head layup. That was kind of his his calling card. Um, I well, it always seemed like he was going to get crushed into the basket support on that or, <laughs> you know, flipped upside down. And he always would pull it off every he, time. He would elude it. He would elude it. And it started, It there was such a legend to him. And it was actually enhanced by the fact that he had been incarcerated because nobody had seen him. We didn't see him in McDonald's All-American game on ESPN, for example, right? And yeah. so you heard about him before you got to see him. And for me, it started in a couple ways. So I, I, I'm getting ready to come to Washington. I'm going to cover Georgetown. And Mike Wilbon calls me because Iverson had played in something called the Kenner League. It's a summer league at Georgetown, like AAU type league. And Iverson shows up for a couple games in the McDonough Gym on Georgetown campus. Places packed and they mm. go crazy for him. And everybody in town is talking about it. And Wilbon calls me up. He says, man, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. This city is going crazy over Iverson. And then I was I was covering college football and I I dropped in the uh, Big 8 or whatever, Big 12, whatever it was back then. And I see Roy Williams. I tell him, Georgetown Iverson, he says, oh, you're in for a treat. Mm. These, the coaches had seen him, but the public hadn't seen him. We just heard him and heard the whole story about how he went to prison and all that, but we hadn't seen him. And then the first time I get to see him, it's an exhibition game, McDonough Gym, Tom Boswell from the Washington Post and I are there. And we're just going crazy. John Thompson doesn't start Iverson, brings him in. Iverson just goes nuts. And Boswell calls it the greatest debut he'd seen since Lou Alcindor in New York. Wow. Like 30 years prior. That's the level he was doing it. John Thompson teases us the next day. He said, I read the comic pages you guys are right. Because I went crazy too. We both were going nuts over a freshman. And John Thompson was trying to temper things. Uh, John Thompson said, you guys have him in the Hall of Fame already. And guess what? When he went into the Hall of Fame, I wanted to say, guess what, John? I was right. I called it that first day. <laughs> well, you think about Len Bias 10 years before, right? Another guy who resonates with the DMV in a just totally different way and brings out this element of basketball that is is became iconic. Like he right. he was in a lot of ways, Jordan before Jordan. Then Iverson, I always felt like he was the legacy of that in those two Georgetown years where, you know, it, there was just something different. It didn't just feel like college basketball. It felt like cultures being brought into basketball that, you know, were happening in other places, just not basketball in the same way. Right. But I think Iverson was more national and you're right. There, there's a possessiveness to Len Bias in the DMV area. That he mm. was their guy. He was their Jordan. But Iverson didn't just belong to Georgetown True, from, from the get-go, right? And he was the leader of a movement. And especially right, right away after he got into the NBA, he represented something to young people. And it's interesting because Iverson, Kobe, Garnett, those are the first guys that I was older than. Everyone else that I covered, you know, when I first started in this business, 
I had their posters on my, you know, Jordan, Barkley, and Magic. I'd seen them before growing up. And then the Fab Five and Shaq, I was in college at the same time as those guys. Yeah. So Iverson, I didn't get the experience of admiring him as a younger person. So that was different. So I can't relate to how so many people relate to him, which is he represented us. I looked up to him. He inspired me. He was so inspirational for young people because he was Generation X coming in to take over the NBA. Well, and then he comes into the league and it's being covered by mostly older white people, right? And they're kind of like, what is this? And at the same time, you have a fan base where the league's a little like where they were in the late 70s, where you have mostly white ticket holders, and then you have salaries skyrocketing, and there's this weird identification issue that's going on basically from, let's say, 96 to 99 to the lockout, where there was real resentment against some of the NBA players, which seems crazy now because NBA players are so beloved. Right. But at that time, and then Iverson comes into this, he looks different than most of the guys, and there was real resentment toward him. And you could feel it in some of the pieces you read you read back then, right? Where you're like, wow. It was the culture wars. So yeah. Iverson in the NBA and, and starting with the Fab Five in college, and hip hop is still on the outside at that time. So if you're under 20 or under 30, maybe, you don't, hip hop is just such a normal part. It's incorporated into everything, right? But back then, hip hop was still on the outside looking in. And if you're associated with hip hop, that makes you an outsider. And Bill, it wasn't just the white fan base. It wasn't just the white media. It was the older players who really didn't warm to Iverson. And Interesting. Who, who saw him as a threat to their well-being. And, and we've seen this over, you know, the older guys talking about the younger guys. But there was a real pushback to Iverson and what he represented. And I remember the 97 All-Star Game in Cleveland. That's the year the NBA was celebrating its 50 greatest players. And so half of that weekend was about celebrating the, the past and all the great players that gathered there, everyone, Kareem, Wilt, Bill Russell, anyone you can name, the 50 greatest players in the history of the NBA. And half of it was that, but a lot of it was those guys talking about Iverson and how bad he was for the game. Mm. So the older black players, the legends of the game, they were all coming down on him, which I think to Iverson's fan base only motivated them even more and made him their guy taking on the establishment. It's so funny because I knew basically none of this happening. I'm living in Boston. There's no internet yet. There's no Twitter. There's no any sort of mechanism where you could see the counter side unless, you know, you lived in certain cities or you had certain friend groups and that's it. Right. And there's this whole thing happening where Iverson is becoming the iconic guy for this whole generation of people. And a lot of people were just completely missing it. And you even think like how Stern handled some of this stuff, right? So the famous thing is they airbrush the tattoos, right? The dress code comes in. A lot of people feel that's a response to Iverson. 100%. So he appeared on the cover of Hoop Magazine or whatever the, the in arena magazine was, and they airbrushed his tattoos. And so this is right before Rodman popularizes that tattoo. So Rodman, I think, did more to make the tattoos okay. Interesting. Because he's a part of a winning team playing next to Jordan. And so he made it okay for tattoos. Now everybody, nobody talks about the fact that LeBron is all tatted up or you know, the biggest stars in the game, KD, you name it. They're all tatted up, but it's not a big deal anymore. It was a big deal when Iverson had a lot of tattoos. And it's funny because he, he changed. And that's part of it, Bill, is people, sports writers, anyone, they don't like to change the story. 
So he comes into the game, comes into the league. He's got the short haircut that we've been seeing in the league for a good 10, 15 years. He only had the one tattoo. He had that, that bulldog and the answer on his left shoulder. He played with that at Georgetown because John Thompson wasn't about to let Iverson have tattoos. I remember he said right. he was talking. So he had his own dress code at Georgetown, and Allen had to adhere to that. And i never forget John said, it's like Iverson coming in here with those earrings. Son, take that shit out. <laughs> right. So John Thompson wasn't having it. So Iverson gets the freedom now when he goes to the NBA so he can become even more of who he is, right? He can dress how he wants, the tattoos, the braids, all that comes after he was in the NBA. But I think a lot of people thought, oh, we thought he was this repentant kid who was just grateful for a second chance after he'd been sent to prison. No, he was unrepentant when he got into the league. And again, for younger people, they gravitated toward that. And Bill, I'm not sure I was even quite aware of it, even though I was around it. I don't think I realized and appreciated how much he meant to younger people until later, maybe even after he got to the Hall of Fame. And I've talked to people who came up after him. They said, oh, man, Allen Iverson, that was my guy. He meant so well, much. And that's what happened, right? The people who changed the narrative on him ultimately were the generation right after him. And I've had some of them on my podcast. I know you've talked to people. Those people revered him. Like I had Matt Barnes and, and Steven Jackson on my pod like four or five months ago. And they were just talking about what it meant to have somebody in the league who's one of the best players who looked and acted like them. Yeah, Allen Iverson. He's the main one. He's the main one to me. I mean, there's no reason why when they have all these NBA events and all the stuff that he's not included or they don't, that all his face is not involved. You know, I think they kind of shot away from him because of the side of the culture that he brought to the game. You know, uh, he he his face and what he's brought to the game is just as big as Jerry West's picture on the basketball. Mm. for what he's done for guys from where we from. You know what I mean? He gave us the the confidence to he, – he let us know that we can make it to the NBA, be successful, be an MVP, and not compromise who we are. Not compromise we what we are. Hold our own skin. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? You can you be, be comfortable in your own skin. And, and AI did that for a lot of guys. And to this day, guys walk around with tattoos. Guys walk around, with, you know, with, with wearing their hair like they want to. You know, even 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 with the dress code and all that, they have a, it has a lot to do when Allen Iverson came to the league. And I think he is one of those guys that don't get the praise he deserves. Absolutely. He became a hero just for that. So you had that next generation come up and they idolized him. And now we're in 2020 and it's completely swung where I think now, I think Iverson is beloved now. I think he is Absolutely. one of the most beloved ex-players. And it's so funny because it was so not the case in the late 90s. He was so polarizing and really, it didn't, it didn't seem like he was ever going to put it together, which is why 2001 was so special. Well, Bill, and that's the case for so many players, right? Half of it is Kobe Bryant. How, how polarizing was Kobe Bryant oh, yeah. for much of his career? And then all the way up until his, his untimely passing, the older version of Kobe is beloved. I mean, he, he basically had a love fest his last go around the league. So part of it is lasting. And part of it with Iverson is we're happy he's here because, to be honest, Part of the narrative was him. We weren't sure he was going to make it to 30. Right. And 40, imagine the odds you could have gotten on that, that he would make it into his 40s. So that's part of it, Bill, was that we're just happy that he's here because he could have easily gone down a different path that, that would have had a much darker outcome. I feel like out of all the great players, the two most completely authentic to themselves players the league has ever had is Iverson and Bill Russell. They were wow. people that... They did not change who they were one inch. They they were who they were. And if you didn't like it, fuck you. 
but that's who they were. And for Iverson to pull that off, really in the last 25 years, when so much of the NBA and so much of being an NBA star is the perception of who you are versus who you are and, and doing stuff on social media or, or giving speeches or saying things because you want people to think of you a certain way. Iverson honestly didn't care. He didn't care what anyone thought. He was just going to do his thing. He didn't care what you thought, period. Yes and no. They they all care. And Oh, you think? Uh, yeah. So I, I did one of my favorite pieces I ever did, and it was one that I wish it could have been the in internet, and I had to write it for my column in the LA Times. And, um, you know, so I had to cut out a lot of the stuff. But it's it was the first time Iverson, Chris Webber, and Kobe Bryant – all played in the same game because Weber was with the uh, the 76ers at that point. Right. So March of 2005, and I'm on the road with the Lakers, and I just talked to all three of those guys before and after the game about their image and about the way they were perceived and about how they wanted to be perceived. And so so here's Iverson, and I'll, I'll never forget, I, I was able to get him before the game, and, and the great Phil Jasner kind of came up to me and gave me that after. He's like, man, you know, I'll never talk before the game. But – Again, he and I went back to day one, and that, that was a very special connection. I'm very honored that I have that, that association with Iverson. So he says, he was trying to spin it as he was more growing up. He says, the whole image is blown out of proportion. I ain't 21 years old anymore. I'm almost 30 years old. What do you want me to do? Keep doing the same old? When I first came to the league, I didn't know nothing about nothing. All I knew was surviving from where I was from, getting out of the ghetto. Then somebody gives me millions and millions of dollars. You give somebody that never had nothing something, he's going to make a lot of mistakes. Hmm. I've got some that I still make. They're just not as detrimental because my lifestyle ain't that no more. I done did everything. I've done did all the run around, all the wild stuff. It just ain't me. And he was talking about how he's got kids now. He's got to handle himself. But that was part of what he loved. He, he would always say, I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. A big part of the practice rant, speech, press conference was him saying all those things. I'm human. And that's one of the things that drew people to him so much. Yeah. Well, I remember... He did Stephen A's first show and Stephen A had quite frankly. And it's really like the first podcast. He, <laughs> now it would just be, he right. would have gone on a podcast and right. said all this stuff he said. And he was, he was just so compelling, but he has this one point, and I think it was in the 07 range. Stephen A asked him about LeBron and Iverson says, when you reach out to the LeBron James, to the Carmelo Anthony's, to the Dwayne Wade's, because I happen to know you have reached out to them. Them dudes got heart too. I know. By the way. I know. What, what are the kind of things you say to them right now, based on your own personal experience? Learn from what I did wrong. Learn from all the stuff you've seen Aaron Iverson um, do wrong that, that rubbed everybody the wrong way. If you don't want to go through what I go through right now, as far as being the bad guy in the NBA and all that, all this stuff, be fake then. Basically, that's all I'm telling you. Just be fake. But just, you're not fake. And I'm not going to do it. I'd rather not play, be in the NBA. I'm not living my life like that. But why that. tell them to do that? If that's No, I'm telling, them, I'm telling them to do whatever it takes for them to be successful. I always let LeBron know off top, dog, they love you right now. They love you right now. But please believe me, the first incident, the first time something happened, they are waiting, man. They're waiting, man. They're waiting. They're waiting, man. And... I, I remember watching that thinking like, man, this guy completely understood every single point of his life and how it was received and whether he cared or not. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Everybody cares deep down, but he wasn't going to change who he was for anybody. He was who he was. And that was it. And you either accepted it or you didn't. And you got to see Iverson at his best. 
And that was Stephen A at his best. Apex Mountain. I, I know we're not doing uh, rewatchables here, but <laughs> I think that's Apex for Stephen A. Even he's though, great. I, you know, he's more powerful now, richer, all that. But he had Allen Iverson come onto his show and break down in tears on his very first show. Quite frankly, with Stephen A. Smith, it's on YouTube, by the way. It's honestly one of the best hours in the history of ESPN. It's so good. It's not even it, an hour. It's like forty minutes. It's so compelling. And it's based on the relationship that Stephen A had forged with Allen Iverson. The trust that Allen Iverson had in Stephen A allowed for that moment. And they get to this place where Iverson is crying and talking about Larry Brown, who he's had his clashes with game by game, year by year. And yet he appreciates what Larry Brown meant to him and what he did for him and the fact that he had his MVP season and he went to the finals playing for Larry Brown. So quickly, because I want to get to the categories, but the chronology of you. So you cover him at Georgetown. Yeah. So I and I, then I, what? I, so how does your career move alongside his as he's going? So I do two years. Then his rookie year, I'm covering. Um, I'm, I get moved up to the Bullets the last year that they were the Washington Bullets. Oh, but it's funny. We 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 both wind up in L.A. for a preseason, some preseason games that they used to have. They used to do like a little mini tournament in L.A. And I'd heard all summer about how his boys were just acting up. They'd be at Summer League. This is before the Vegas Summer League, whatever, wherever Summer League was that year. Like his boys are acting up in the stands and they're throwing bottles and just causing a mess. And I come up to him before a game. I say, you know, Alan, man, people are saying you got to keep your crew in check. And he says, man, I don't give a fuck what people say. <laughs> and I thought, oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hey, good seeing you, Alan. Exactly. And like, here we go. And so all the controversies, all the stuff from Allen Iverson that he had in his early years that I kind of referenced with that quote from him, you can see the genesis of it right there. Um, he, he, he reminded me a little of Tyson in the fact that I thought one of the fascinating things about Tyson was how self-aware he was about everything that was happening to him. Even when things had completely spiraled out of control, he was always very, very, very aware of how other people regarded him. And with Iverson, I don't know how, you know, he was obviously a little aware of how people regarded him, but um, compared to what people thought he was versus who he was, that was one of the great things about him to me because he was completely different than what people thought he was. And especially if you were around him, you couldn't help but like him. Yeah, right? yeah, that that was part of it. There's something he he couldn't say a word, and you're just drawn to him. His eyes, his his demeanor. He he just had this earnestness to him that you rooted for him. And when he messed up, as he frequently did, you weren't mad at him. You were just like, like one of your kids, right? Like ah, uh, you know, you're, you're disappointed in him. You're not angry at him. You certainly didn't want to dismiss him. Uh, John Thompson was incredibly fond of him. Couldn't stay mad at him when right. he was coaching him at Georgetown. Larry Brown. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's a very unique character aspect of you could not stay mad at him. Lamar Odom has some of that, you know, and just that you, you, you're just drawn to him. You want him to do well, sometimes even in spite of themselves when they seem incapable of getting out of their way so that they can succeed. Um, an important distinction I want to make about Allen, and, and this goes back to the college where I realized it was the case. Remember, He's there two years at Georgetown. They don't get a Big East championship. They have that collapse against Ray Allen and UConn. Ray Allen great makes a shot that bounces yeah. in. Um, one of the all-time great Big East games. Um, but they don't win the Big East championship. Never gets to the Final Four, right? Loses to Carmelo Travioso. And who's the other guy? Padilla on that UMass team? Oh, my. That, uh, uh, that beats wait, them to, to, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. go to the Final Four. Um, 
God, who's so, the other guy? And what Lou I realized Rowe, was then, Lou Rowe on that team. A little Lou Rowe action. Might have been. Might have yeah. been. Anyway, you can look up those those early UMass Calipari UMass squads. But what I realized then, and it did hold up throughout his career, is that he's a winner, but he's not a champion. And the flip side of that is just because he never won a championship doesn't mean he's not a winner, right? Getting out of what he came out of, young, you know, teenage mother, single mom, everything that he was around, just getting through that and succeeding in spite of that environment, he's a winner. But it was that extra bit that comes from being a champion, the way you carry yourself, conduct yourself, the dedication that you need to have, that's what was missing. But he's still a winner, he just wasn't a champion. Well, it turns out his title is he is single-handedly prevents the 2001 Lakers from going undefeated in the playoffs <laughs> and beats and them in that first his, game. That's his peak, right? In a lot of yeah. ways, you know, and that's the the step over over Ty Lue and all that. And it was interesting because at this point now, I'm not around him. I'm I'm in L.A. I'm on the other side of the country. I'm only seeing him a couple of times a year. I got to cover that series, obviously covering the Lakers for the L.A. Times. So it's cool for me that I did get to be around him at his peak. And um, I was impressed. So I thought Shaq should have been the MVP that year. I'm, I'm around Shaq every day. I see his impact. You, you saw it in the finals that year. But seeing that team and how offensively deficient that team was mm. and how Iverson had to do all the scoring, this little barely six-foot guy, drag this team to the finals, take a game off the Lakers, I thought, yeah, he's the MVP. Well, and that's the thing where it's the Russell Westbrook 2017 piece of it is the worst case scenario of it, right? Where the team is built to make one guy succeed and get stats and have a certain outsized thing. In the Iverson 01 case, the team just wasn't very good. And if he didn't do all the stuff they did, they weren't going to succeed. And he dragged them three rounds into the finals and they're playing this super team. It's the best version of those three Laker teams because they're playing their best at the time. Beats them in game one. I remember I was still living in Boston back then. And I remember thinking like, Iverson might be able to beat these guys. Like you really talked yourself <laughs> you into it. it. I mean, it was he, absurd. He, he did. He yeah. could but. Well, I mean, he pushed him in game two. Game three, it's another Robert Ory shot. Yeah. And or otherwise they could have won that game. And it could have been a really interesting series. And then just kind of the, the bottom, the, the inevitability took over. Shaq just worked to Kembe Mutombo inside, and that was it. And they, they ran going away. But but that was his peak moment. That was as close. He was three wins away from the NBA championship. They're up one nothing in the finals. Think about that, Bill. They're up one nothing on a Laker team that had just been destroying the Western Conference. And that, w- that was as good as it got, as close as it got. But I will say the moment that sticks with me uh, and I think a better version of Allen Iverson, the basketball player, was mm. actually in 2005. Agreed. And so that year, that's after Shaq and Phil are gone from L.A., the Lakers missed the playoffs. And so I convinced the L.A. Times to just send me around on a tour of like, hey, L.A., here's what you're missing out on. I'm going around to all these different playoff cities. And I do Philly versus the Pistons. The Pistons are the defending champions that year, having beaten the Lakers. And that version of Iverson, like, you know, he's not the scoring champ anymore, but he's he's has a career high in assists that year. So in this game, he has 37 points, 15 assists, incredible game. They win. But what stood out to me, what I wrote about, and this is like game two or three of the series, right? It's, the series isn't over. And like uh, Rashid Wallace and Ben Wallace, they're dapping up Iverson during the game. They're helping him up when he gets knocked down. They're... They're, you know, after the game, they're coming and showing him love. 
in the middle of a playoff series. Usually you see this after playoff series. And I asked him all about that. I was like, she, you know, that's kind of unusual. And he's like, Bubba Chuck, that's my guy. That was Iverson's nickname. So like the true homies of Iverson would call him Chuck or Bubba Chuck because that's what his family called him. Right. He's like, Chuck's my guy, man. I love that guy. And like they couldn't bring themselves to bark at him or be mad. And that spoke to the love that other players felt for Iverson. And that showed me like he is just the guy to everyone in that league, especially a dog like Rashid. If you've got Rashid on your side, what do you think that says about you that he thinks you're the man, even when he's playing against you? Well, think about putting a 37-15 up against that Pistons team yeah. during an era when scoring's way down and all they they have trees everywhere in the paint. Yeah. If Iverson's 5'10 driving, he's got both Wallace's, he's got Tayshaun Prince, he's got Phillips, yeah. Rip Hamilton, like just to even score 30 was a miracle against that team for him. And so Larry Brown's coaching, coaching that Pistons squad and obviously knows Iverson very well and says, this is the ball he's best ball he's ever played. Actually, he did lead the league in scoring that year. So average yeah. 30, just under 31 points a game and just under eight assists. So that was career high assists. So he finally understood the game, right? And and knew when to go and when to leave off and when to get his and how to get his teammates involved. So that might've been the best version of him. And remember that's coming off in some ways, his best moments was the 2004 Olympics. That's a disaster for the team. And they win the bronze medal. And a lot of people say the only reason they won the bronze medal is Iverson said, hey, guys, we're not going home with nothing. You know, they're all depressed. They didn't come there to win bronze. But Iverson wouldn't let them go home without something. And a right, lot of right. people that were there thought that he really showed leadership in a way they hadn't seen before. So you mentioned the, his 2005 and 2006 seasons. If you combine the stats, he's 32-8, and eight, 44% field goal, 11 free throw attempts a game. 24.5 PR, and he played 42.7 minutes, which we'll get into all the minute stuff with Iverson I mean, the later, toll but... it must have taken on him to go to the line basically 12 times a game. Yeah, when you're five foot ten, But I'm with you. Even though he peaked from an NBA character in 2001 for all the stuff that happened, I thought he was incredible in 05 and 06. I remember one of those years... I think I voted for him like second or third for MVP because <laughs> yeah. uh, it, it wasn't like that was a great Philly team. He was really doing it. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. All right, we're going to uh, we're gonna hit the categories here. So, Are we going to talk about practice? <laughs> yeah, well, it's coming. Okay. Um, here's the resume for Iverson. He played 14 years, 12 quality, nine all-stars, 97 rookie of the year, 2001 MVP. Uh, 20K point club member, four scoring titles. How many times do you think he led the league in minutes per game? I'm cheating. I got it up. Uh, don't no, don't look. Oh, uh, sorry. I, I see a lot of I see a lot of bold numbers in there. I would say six. <laughs> yeah, seven. Wow. Uh, in five two thousand point seasons for his career, he averaged twenty six point seven points, six highest ever. Three first team on base, three second teams, one third team. Two thousand one MVP, Finals runner up. 22 playoff games, 33, five and six. And in the playoffs, 67 games, 36 and four, 40% uh, 
field goal. So here's the five things you need to know about Allen Iverson other than what we just talked about. So we mentioned he went to jail and we ended up doing one of the first 30 for 30s we did was the, the trial Allen Iverson. And it is one of the all-time railroadings of an athlete that our judicial system has given. And you think about 2020 and social justice, all that stuff. This probably never happens in 2020 because with Twitter and everything, it becomes a big deal. In 93, you barely heard about the story unless you were living, you know, near where it was happening. I didn't know about it in Boston until he got recruited by Georgetown. February 93, he has a bowling alley fight um, where it's, I don't know how many people were in it, dozens, like 2020. And somehow they pick certain people, go after them, including him. And he ends up going to jail. And this guy's one of the best athletes in high school. He's headed toward, you know, a one and done possibly in college or a two and done. And he's going to, you know, he's one of the guys and he just gets removed and eventually has to get pardoned to, you know, get out of the situation where you've been in jail multiple years. What do you remember about that living in the area at the time? So I wasn't there when that happened. I get there after. So I, I get there the summer of 94. So after he's freed, he's on his way to Georgetown. It. But I will say, I feel like every story I wrote that year, at least every non-game story, we just had to have this paragraph summarizing what you just talked about, you know, and I had it memorized at one point, but, you know, he served like X number of months of a- it's Eight months. This year, yeah, of a, this, you know, so many years sentence. It was, it was pardoned by then Governor L. Douglas Wilder from Virginia. Like there was all this boilerplate language we had, but like you had to account for the fact of where he'd come from and what he'd been through. Right. It's an essential part of his story, especially back then. And so so David Nakamura covered Maryland and, and he'd been on the Iverson beat before I got there. Washington Post sports writer. Now he covers the White House for them. But he covered a lot of the Iverson stuff leading up to to his um, coming to Georgetown and getting into Georgetown. And so he wrote about a lot of that stuff. So he helped me work on this. We had to have this just condensed possible two sentence description, which had to summarize all that in two sentences because you couldn't talk about his story without talking about that essential component. And what I remember is they play a game at the Spectrum against Villanova in Philly and all the fans are calling him jailbird and they've got signs and all this stuff. And John Thompson was super protective of his guys and he threatened not to play. This is a national CBS wow. game, Sunday afternoon game. And he was ready to take his team back to the locker room and not play unless the fans cleaned up their act. But that was something that he had to um, he had to deal with. And I'll also remember his very first game. It's at the Pyramid in Memphis. They're playing Arkansas. And uh, so remember that he had been accused of throwing a chair at someone in, in their bowling alley brow. We, we never know for sure if he did it, but that's what he'd been accused of. And... Uh, a player goes out of bounds trying to save a ball and he kind of kicks a, one of the courtside chairs. I'll just never forget Iverson standing there and he's next to a chair. And it was just very symbolic because a chair, just a chair was such a big part of his story at that point. Yeah. And it was just this, this symbolic moment of here he is on the court. And it was almost like he can't escape his past, right? Here's a chair just winds up right next to him. Jesus. Well, we did. So we're creating 30 for 30. It's in motion. We're trying to get directors to do it in 2008. And one of the first directors who wanted to do it was Steve James, who did Hoop Dreams. Hoop Dreams. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like about 15 years after that. It's the most, that and When We Were Kings were the first two great sports documentaries. Right. And he wants to do an uh, Allen Iverson. He's, I'm from that area. It was terrible what happened. And I want to do a documentary about 
trying to reconcile with the fact that how could I come from a place that was this racist toward the best athlete we'd ever produced? And that was the 30 for 30. So if you go on the uh, ESPN Plus, you can you can see it. But it was one of those stories I didn't know anything about until he's pitching it to us. I'm like, holy shit, really? You just didn't and know. I think 90s politics, especially, it's, oh, criminal. You know, criminals, you right. know, the crime bill, all that. And it's not the possibility that the system could be tilted against black people. But now no. we view it through that lens. But you have to remember in the 90s when he's coming up, he's coming in the league and this is attached to him, it's this thought of criminality without taking into consideration injustice. Right. Uh, next thing you need to know. Iverson, how many All-Stars do you think he played with in Philly who made the All-Star team when he was there? While he was there. Whew. Dikembe? Dikembe Dik was Defensive Player of the Year. Dikembe and Theo Ratliff. That was it. That was it? Wow. Yeah. So he played with role players, over, all overpaid. Eric Snow, Aaron McKee, Kyle Korver, who ended up having a good career, but they overpaid him. Kenny Thomas, Mark Kyle Korver, who does a pretty good Allen Iverson impersonation, by the way. Oh, that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I heard him do his AI impersonation. It's pretty good. Mark Jackson, Brian Skinner, Greg Buckner, Tyrone Hill, George Lynch, Corliss Williamson. I think all those guys ended up getting overpaid at some point. He also played with uh, Derek Coleman, Keith Vainhorn, Sam Dallenbear, Joe Smith. For high pedigree <laughs> disappointments who are expensive. He played with uh, some overpaid washed up guys, Todd McCulloch, Tony Kukoc. They got him like two years too late. C Web, they, they got, got, they got late three Chris years Weber, too late. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Robinson, two years too late. Matt Geiger, Billy Owens. And then three lottery picks, all of whom are frustrating as hell Jerry Stackhouse, Tim Thomas, Larry Hughes. And there was a lot of Stackhouse Iverson. Remember their, their entourage just had a brawl and they eventually had to like <laughs> trade Stackhouse because there was so much bad blood. And from what we know about Jerry Stackhouse, one of the all-time don't fuck with me guys. Yeah. So the fact that him and Iverson were on the same team, alphas, not getting yeah. along, yeah, we might've actually gotten off pretty well with how this turned out. <laughs> uh, so that was another one. Uh, third thing you need to know, you alluded to it earlier. You could fill, I think out of anybody the league's had, you could fill an entire chapter with like seventh hand Iverson stories that one of us had heard about. Um, I heard, I heard he was out drinking for 72 straight hours. I heard he lost a million dollars at a casino right. and you never knew what was true. I heard he peed into a plant and got kicked out of a casino. You never knew what was true and not true. And it would go through this filter of this guy I heard, oh, this guy who worked for the Lakers told me. The, the, the replacement car, uh, which I'll just leave it at that. You know, right. you either know that story or you don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that story. So there was an urban legend factor to him, almost <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a house on your street where you're like, I heard something weird happen. What happened? Oh, I heard my, my aunt's never. And that was just what it was like to cover the league with Alan Iverson in it. You never knew what was true. And even at Georgetown. So at Georgetown, John Thompson knew all, see all. He had that city under lock, spies everywhere, right? And yet Iverson somehow managed to slip under his radar. Mm. And I knew somebody that was doing some recording stuff. He'd be in the studio with, with Iverson. And he was telling me about where Iverson was going and what he was up to. And I checked in with John Thompson and John had no idea. And to slip and to elude John Thompson, you have to be deep, deep, deep under. By all accounts, a vampire did not sleep. <laughs> like they always say Jordan didn't sleep. It seems like the two guys who just never slept were Iverson and Jordan. Like they but needed like you could 40 see minutes it on of Iverson, sleep. though. Right. Right. Yeah. Jordan, you couldn't tell. You could see it on Iverson. So, well, it all it all 
flips on him because 2009, 2010, where he's not that old, plays 85 games on four teams. All of a sudden, it's over. He's washed up. You're like, what happened? The guy averaged 26 a game a year ago. But his Bill, career, you knew that, though. Because of his body, because of the way he played, you knew when it went bad, it was going to go all the way bad really quickly. Well, to to bring back the Tyson analogy, it was like a boxer, where it yeah. was just like when boxers hit that point, we're like, oh, yeah, it's over. T- too many fights. And with Iverson, it was like too much punishment, not enough sleep. But yeah. his career Next ended. Topic. I don't want to think about that version of Alan Iverson. <laughs> Next well, <topic. laughs> his career ends at 34, a year younger than LeBron, who just won the finals wow. MVP and the fourth title. Like, think about that. Wow. He was a year younger than LeBron. He seemed like he was like 45. And he came into the league two years later. And and, and he was even older, right? Because he had the, he had he was in prison. So yeah, it's it's less age or le- less time in the league, but a younger age than this it's, version of LeBron that we just got. It's a 12-year career, basically. No major injuries, and it just abruptly ends. Like, you normally you would see it. It's like, oh, that guy must have had a herniated disc or a torn ACL, microfracture surgery. No, it was, it was just... Uh, but it was, I, I remember a scout, though, telling me, or a coach, when he loses that step, it's over for him because his speed was right, such too an small. amazing asset. And they said he doesn't have a counter. When he loses that step, it's going to be over, and that's what happened. Two more uh, things you need to know about Iverson. So here's the case against him. Just, I'm pro-Iverson. I've always been pro-Iverson. I remember really wanting the Celtics to trade for him in 06 when he became available. They had the lottery picks. Now, th- this is the case against him, what? Because he's obviously Hall of Famer. So we're No, this is the case against- when, when, for the statisticians, the people okay. who are like, he never won a ring. This right. is what they would bring up. They would say he's a ball hog. He averaged 23 plus shots in seven straight seasons. They would point out he was a really subpar three-point shooter for how many three-point shooters he took. He's 31% career. He had three straight sub-30% seasons from 02 to 04. They would point to his turnovers. It's basically almost four turnovers a game for his careers in the mid-fours for a few seasons. And they would say, uh, why did he take 3,400 career threes? And they would say, why defensively did you always have to match him with certain types of players? Uh, they would usually put the tall point guard, the Eric Snow type, because Iverson, you know, you'd have to hide him defensively. So those would be the cases against him, right? Is there anything and, else? And my missing? answer to that, here's a metric for you, Bill. Mesmerization. Yeah, right. I know that's not a number. I doubt it's even a word, but I think that captures what he was and what made him so he was a mesmerizing player to watch because he was so defined. You're not supposed to go into the lane like that if you're that size. And yet he did again and again. You're not supposed to be able to drag a team through the Eastern Conference playoffs and take a game off the Lakers playing that way. And yet he did. You could not take your eyes off him. And that's why he's so memorable for those who watched him. Well, that's why we're doing the podcast. (laughs) <laughs> we don't want people to just go to his basketballreference.com page and be like, hey, what about this? Oh, he's only 30% three-point shooter. The last thing I'll uh, the last thing you need to know, I think he invented, I always called it the zero guard, right? In in basketball, it's one, two, you're a one, two, three, right. four, or five. Lead and guard. The, the one is a point guard. I I he was to me a zero guard. He was he dribbled Free the ball Westbrook. up. Yeah, he was so the legacy is like him, Marbury. Gilbert Arenas, Steve Francis, Jay Williams during that one year before he got hurt. And then eventually Westbrook of like, this guy's 
I don't know what he is, but he's not a point guard, but yeah. it's good to have him have the ball all the time. And also he struggles if he doesn't have the ball all the time. So this is just kind of where we are. I don't remember a guy before him who was like that though. Do you No a zero guard? He, I feel like he was the first one. You hear Isaiah brought up a lot, of course, when you're talking about, cause he's, it, it's him and Isaiah when you're talking about the best guys under six, three best little guys. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, he, yeah, he was. And, but the thing is, there was never a debate. Well, they did have Eric Snow play point guard, right? Especially that year they went to the finals. So yeah, Eric he played the would, ball a little bit. Would, would bring the ball up. So he really was more of a shooting guard, but he definitely played point guard at Georgetown and he came into the league as a point guard. And I think that's part of the, the genius of Larry Brown, right? Is he figured that, okay, we can't ask this guy to be a traditional point guard because that's not what he's not what he's here to do. But he was assigned that role. But that was never really him. That wasn't what he was about. At a time when point guards were expected to be point guardy, the classic definition of point guard. Yeah, they were the set the table, take over the last six minutes. He, I do think toward the end of his Sixers career, I do think he did find a better balance with that stuff, how to set people up and things like that. It took a while. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, next category is what stage the best? I mean, we, we talked about it already, but we got to talk about his style and especially in the late 90s, what that meant. And and what it led to and how the league reacted. Like when I think of the dress code, I just my mind goes to Iverson, even though he wasn't missing games. It wasn't like he was on the sidelines, but it all the way the league was reacting and how fearful the league was of like, wait a second, our fans are getting turned off. What do we do? I feel like Iverson was the epicenter of that. And now you look back and it seems so silly because now they've embraced all that stuff. But in the right. 90s, they were not. Well, the iconic moment is he goes to get the rookie of the year, rookie of the year award with the wave cap on, right? And it's like he didn't care. He just showed up, picked up his award, wave cap on, and he's he's good. And th that was a, just a defining moment for Allen Iverson. So that's something that is the best because be who you want to be, right? Be who you are. That ethos that we see so much, why not Russell Westbrook? And again, that's another way in which Westbrook is a descendant of him. Yeah. But walking into the gym with swagger. And he was swagger before we used that term. Do you feel like, where would you rank him on influential 90s people in the culture? Against, obviously you're competing against. Yeah, I mean, is Jordan, I mean, Jordan is reigning supreme but Iverson is ushering in a new era simultaneously. And it's funny because Iverson doesn't even really come into play in the, the Last Dance documentary. Right. But that's happening simultaneously with all that, um, including, so his rookie year is the year of Jordan's return, 
right? No, that's Jordan's second year, the famous crossover. So you do have this interaction of Jordan and Iverson and Iverson crosses him up. And that's the announcement, not just that Iverson is here, there's a whole new generation that's here. And watch out, you know, Michael's, Michael still has two more championships in him, but he's literally stumbling off to the side. And that's a sign that, okay, there's a new group that's getting ready to take over. And within three years, within four years, it's him and Kobe and Shaq in the NBA Finals. Well, it's funny because when they were doing all the next MJ stuff, especially after he retired, and it was always like, Grant Hill, uh, uh, Kobe, Kobe right? v- Vince Carter. Nobody was ever like, Iverson, that's the guy, because it seemed improbable that Iverson was going to be the next MJ. And yet, when you go back and you think other than Kobe, like he was definitely became more iconic, I think, than anybody else from that era. Well, Bill, I, I would say that Iverson... You see more Iverson in the league now than Jordan, stylistically. Now, Jordan changed everything. Longer shorts, shorter socks, bald head, wristband up by your elbow. All that comes from Jordan, right? But so much of what you see now, tattoos, braids, everything else, that's Iverson. And you see more of Iverson in the league now than you see of Jordan. Yeah, it's a good point. I think the last 10 years have been great for Iverson. I mean, I yeah. have that. I don't know what stage is the best. Just the 2010s were awesome for him. We leave the 2010s. <laughs> he's like this outsized icon compared to when he left. You know what's funny, Bill? So like what age the best? Iverson. What age the worst? Iverson. Like physically, <laughs> right, right, age true. the worst, right? Yeah, good point. Um, I had this in my notes about when he got, he's about to get traded in 06 to Denver. And they used to have that show, NBA Coast to Coast, which I know you went on a bunch of yeah. times. And so in my notes, it was Greg Anthony, Tim Legler, and John Barry. And they just started trading Iverson stories. And I said, <laughs> I wrote that it it felt like they were talking about a Mayan warrior where they're just for 20 <laughs> minutes, just be like, I remember this one time. And I just remember sitting at my home watching it like, man, who else would, other than Jordan, who else would be discussed like this? where these three guys who played with him are just reverentially talking about their interactions with them. He, he, he just carried that. I, I would love to hear more Corver stories. I bet Kyle oh, Corver, yeah. he's become a very important voice in basketball, actually. He, he, go online, he's got a great talk about what happened that night in the Milwaukee Bucks locker room the, the night they sat out the game. But Corver, I would love to hear his stories. I'd love to hear Stackhouse and Iverson and what that clash was like now Oof. that we have some distance. Right. Yeah. I, I'd love to hear Stackhouse, who's a very thoughtful person, but also not somebody you want to mess with. And I would love to hear from him, Larry Brown. So th- there's one Larry Brown story. We might have to cut this, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell that he used to say, um, you know, every time I took Iverson out of the game, he would motherfuck me. <laughs> so if you think about it, 82 games. Yeah, I'm taking him out twice a game. <laughs> it's 164 motherfuckers a season. <laughs> wow. And that's probably why he didn't take him out that much. <laughs> he played, he he's played like 43 minutes a game. <laughs> I had this as a what's age the best and the worst. So he has this, at the time, iconic 2001 playoff duel with Vince. And it, for the first time, really feels like we have now entered this new post MJ and NBA, right? Where you have, mm-hmm. you have Kobe and Shaq on, on the West as the new super team. You have all these stars coming up in the East. You have Iverson and Vince. Iverson is 54 in game two. Vince has 50 in game three. 
Iverson is 52 in game five. And this was like, they weren't scoring in the one thirties like they do now. This is the equivalent of like if three, if there were three 60 point games and then you have the controversial Vince goes back to UNC to graduate game seven, just all of it was great. And it leads to the next series where a toe to toe battle against Milwaukee, which we'll get to. Um, And we felt like this is the beginning of something, which is why it's also what's age the worst because Weirdly, that was like the highlight of Vince's career. And that six weeks was the highlight of Iverson's career. And it didn't really lead to anything. It it was what it was. So in a weird way, it aged the best and the worst because I don't think the impact was what we thought it was in 2001. Well, I think we had to realize that it wasn't sustainable. Yeah. Right. So similar to Mike Vick, another South Virginia guy who was exciting and the people that saw Iverson say play football said he was very reminiscent of Michael Vick, the way he played, and you just couldn't catch him. He was yeah. super fast. And imagine that Iverson you saw on the basketball court on a football field, but neither one of their styles was built to last. And so he was destined to age the worst in that regard. Vince was six for 18 in that game, played all 48 minutes. Iverson also played all 48 minutes, was eight for 27, 21 and 16. Um, I'm going to just give you the top six who played more than only six Sixers played more than 30, than 27 minutes in this game. So basically a six man rotation, Allen Iverson, Matumbo, Aaron McKee, Tyrone Hill, Eric Snow. Can you name the six Sixer who played 27 minutes? Allen Iverson, Dikembe Matumbo, Aaron McKee, Tyrone Hill. Eric Tiger. It was Jumaine Jones. Wow. He played 30 minutes in a game wow. seven. The league was really, <laughs> really not stacked back then. They got even looking at Toronto. They had Carter, Antonio Davis, Oakley, Alvin Williams, Mo Peterson. Then the bench was Childs, Curry, and Jerome Williams. And that was considered to be like a deep team. It's just the talent was just kind of not yeah. there. No, like I said, when I got an up close, up close look at them in the finals. And I saw that team and You're he like, got them to the finals. He was the MVP. Well, here's another what stage we're speaking of that year. Um, we always talk about 02 Lakers Kings, how that was the fishiest playoff series <laughs> we had from that weird era from like 99 to 03, where every year there was a really fishy series. Uh, everyone forgets about Philly and Milwaukee in 2001. Philly shoots. 186 free throws compared to 120 free throws for Milwaukee. 12 to three in technical fouls for Milwaukee. <laughs> Five and zero oh in flagrants. We saw two games swing on a controversial lane violation and then two no calls. Glenn Robinson doesn't attempt to free throw until game five. During the series, George Carl and Ray Allen are fined a combined $85,000 <laughs> for claiming to the reporters that the series is rigged <laughs> and, uh, and Milwaukee loses in seven and it's, it's pretty bad. And if you, if you ever meet a Bucks fan who was there during then bring up that series and just watch him go for five minutes, they go fucking crazy. The league wanted Iverson in the finals. Now he delivered, but it's a, it has an age great. You know, it's funny. I don't remember much of that series. I was I was off covering the Lakers, and then I well, they did finish early, so I was able to catch the last couple of games. I remember I went out to watch to do something during Game Seven. I recorded it on my VCR. Yes, VCR. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And and 
Ray Allen has a shot to send it in overtime or to win it at the end of the game, right? In game I think seven. OT, yeah. Yeah, and the shot's up and my VCR cut off. Oh! <laughs> like the shot's in the air and my VCR ran out of tape right at that moment. And I had to turn on ESPN. There's, there's another thing that sounds almost as outdated. ESPN News. I turned on ESPN News to, to get the score and to see who won the game. Oh, man. Remember that? When you couldn't, couldn't look up stuff on your phone? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I was like, oh, my God, what happened? And I had to turn on ESPN News and see who won that series. Next category is too early, too late, just right. Did he show up too early? Did he show up too late? Or did he show up just right? just for what his career was. I think he's like the ultimate just right guy. I loved when he showed up in the league. I I love the connection of what else was going on and, and just in America at the time and what he meant as things evolved over the next 12 years. And uh, I don't know. I think it's the perfect time. His style too, he wasn't a great three-point shooter. I don't think he ever would have been. Yeah, He was this physical guard who got to the line and just made sense in the era that he played, right? There, there's no way he gets drafted number one in this era, right? No, but he, I guess the, the the counter would be, would he be shooting like 10,000 threes a day in this era? And would you, know, would you be modeling your game after like James Harden where you're just like free throws and threes, that's it. But the thing is, I don't want to watch that version of Iverson. I love the angles. I love right. his little eight footers and his floaters and how he would crash into people. Like, I don't, I would want to lose that. And the thing is, he loved to be in the gym, but he didn't love to be in the gym getting up a thousand threes. He just yeah. loved playing. Right. Right. So a, a lot of people we talk about, oh, if they played in this era, they just would shoot more threes. Like Isaiah Thomas, I think we all can agree if he played now, he'd be a, a better three point shooter. He'd take more and he'd make more. Yeah. I don't know if we can say that about On Iverson. Yeah. Perfect. I think he's just right. Next category is nerd corner. We mentioned the minutes per game. So career regular season minutes per game leaders, Wilt Chamberlain, 45.8, Bill Russell, 42.3, Oscar Robertson, 42.2, Allen Iverson, 41.1. He's fourth all time minutes per game is five foot 10. Uh, And the next two guys are Elgin Baylor and Jerry West. So it's basically Post-1970, he's this complete outlier for minutes. We're like, well, what was the playoffs different? Here are the playoff minutes per game. Will Chamberlain, 47.2 is number one. Bill Russell, 45.4. Allen Iverson, (laughs) 45.1. That is insane. He didn't come out of games. He he was a point guard going to the line nine to 10, 10, 11 times a game, um, doing everything and didn't come out. No wonder his career ended so fast. But uh, just bonkers. The only other kind of modern guy in the top 13 for playoff minutes is uh, LeBron, 41.6. So but there you go. He's he's a tank. <laughs> right. Uh, next category is, was he a one of one? I, I'm going to say unquestionably. In fact. Yeah, my word was going to be absolutely. Yeah. I Seeing him in person, it was kind of the, for the first time. You're like, what is this? What's happening? This guy's so fast. It was the speed that was in person what separated him. And there's only been a couple guys I can right. remember like that. We're like, oh my God, that guy's fast. And Westbrook is similar and he plays with a similar energy, but Westbrook is more physically overpowering. Yep. And Iverson is just this wisp that you can't catch up to. Yeah. Unintentional comedy wrinkle. Here we go. Practice practice uh this happened do you know when this happened during the 2001 
playoffs. Oh, so the, the season ends for them, right? 2001 or two? No, two, two. no, no, two, 2002. 2002. Right. Obviously, 2001, they go to the finals. 2002. I, the reason I remember is because I'm with the Lakers and they're playing Sacramento. So actually, that's the conference semifinals. So the middle yeah. of the second round of the playoffs, Lakers are playing Sacramento. And I will never forget Shaq reacting to the practice rant and thinking it was the most hilarious thing ever. He couldn't get over it. So, so he they goes lose in the first round, right? Yeah, they lose to Boston in best of five in a game five, a game I went to. I'm proud to say I was there. Um, and Brown criticized Iverson after for missing team practices. And Iverson responded with, we'll just play the rant. I won't do it. It's funnier when he does it. He says the word practice 14 times during the rant. We sitting here, I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game. Not, a, not, not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that, man? We're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that. And I'm not, I'm not shoving it aside, you know, like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we're talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We're talking about practice, man. We're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. We ain't talking about the game. We're talking about practice, man. When you come in the arena and you see me play, you see me play, don't you? Absolutely. You see me give everything I got, right? Absolutely. But we talking about practice right now. We talking about practice. Man, I look, I hear you. I, it's funny to me too. I, I mean, it's strange, it's strange to me too. But we talking about practice, man. We're not even talking about the game, the actual game. When it matters, we're talking about practice. Not only unintentional comedy, but I will say incorrect comedy. And that practice is just completely taken out of context. And that was one part of a 45-minute meeting that he had with the media. And I'll give the Philly beat writers, Ashley McGahee and everybody. Um, so the focus for them was that he said he didn't want to leave. You know, there was some question, would he ask to be traded? And so earlier in that press conference, he says, I'm staying here. I want to be a sixer. So that was the news angle. And then beyond, once you get beyond the practice moment, there's a lot of deep stuff about what he's been through. And he had a friend die earlier that season. Mm. And it's a very um, emotional inside look and a very raw look at who he is and what he's been through and what it's like to be Allen Iverson. And you could never understand you room full of, you know, 40 and 50 year old white sports writers, you could never understand what it's like to be me. I mean, I, I read the little articles and I mean, I, my friends tell me everything people say, but it's all on me. It's all on me. And I, I mean, I accept it, but it hurt, man. I mean, it, it hurt because I mean, it ain't just about just me. It's not just me. Yeah, I got some that I, I need to take care. I need to get better in. But everybody do. But you don't talk about nobody but me. I can't win them all. I'm human. I'm just like y'all, man. I'm just like you. I'm just like you. You might be a little better than me in your eyes or the people that love you in their eyes. You might be a little better than me. But you human. You just like me, right? You just like me. You ain't no different. 
You just like me. You bleed just like I bleed. You cry just like I cry. You hurt just like I hurt. I ain't no different than you. If you watch the whole thing, it's a really fascinating thing. I actually made some of my students here at Northwestern sit and watch it and write a story as if they were Wow. And what would you write if you did it? Because if you covered it, you would not be focusing on the practice. So it's yeah, really it, unfortunate how, I mean, and it is great. I love it. It's the funniest thing ever. It remains funny to this day, the practice part. But the rest of the press conference is a really interesting look at someone who's not afraid. I'll say who he was ahead of his time, unafraid to show his emotions. And, you know, to, to be kind of a, a modern, quote unquote, softer, in touch, touchy-feely male. As hard as he was, he, he had that part of him too. And that's, again, a reason people loved him. Well, and then that, just that small practice thing ends up being along with like the Jim Moore thing, Danny Green. <laughs> there's like five well, of those. Well, there's that, that one mix of the practice and the yeah. playoffs, right? Yeah, I had that so, on my MySpace page. <laughs> was that video? But it's still going. You, you still see it on like the ESPN shows or like some <laughs> local radio show. It'll never die. My other unintentional comedy wrinkle. So this is a true story. I'm sitting, you know, my dad had Celtics season tickets forever at a Sixers game. I don't know what year it was. It was the year that he released his uh, rap album and the league got super pissed off. Right. And yes. remember it was right before the season. Happening. Yeah. yeah. So we had good seats. We're midcourt. And right behind us is Pat Croce, the year that he's taking over the Sixers. And he's sitting next to somebody. I'm just some schmuck on the internet. I have like, you know, 10,000 people reading me. They, he doesn't know. Obviously, he's not going to recognize me. And he starts telling the person next to him about Stern and how mad Stern was about this Allen Iverson thing. And he said, and I heard this and I swear this happened. He's like, the next time this happens, I'm going to suspend you for a year. Like I did with MJ. And I was like stiff. Oh, she said Stern said that. Yeah. Now Whoa. here's the thing. I think Stern threatened that. I don't think he actually suspended MJ. I think it was just a threat to use to make, you know, a younger <laughs> player think that he right. had that kind of power. But Croce said that, and I like stiffened, and I and now I'm just like in full because they're right behind me, and I'm in full eavesdrop. Like, please <laughs> tell me more. But he was basically like, if I see you in my office again, I'm gonna suspend you for a year, like I did with MJ. And I was just like, holy shit! And then you know, poor Croce didn't realize that someday I would actually have a platform. <laughs> but it 100 percent happened. Here's a, here's a question. So that version of Bill Simmons. So you're what 30? Yeah, I'm like 29, 28, okay, 29. So 29 year 30 year old Bill Simmons. If you hear that in 2010, right? Oh, I'm it's going in a blog immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or or and, like and a, I, a 13 and I can't Twitter say we'd thing. We'd be better off for that, right? No. I think I put it <laughs> I put it in my column at the time. It was just barely anyone was reading me, but it was definitely <laughs> in one of the comms. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Next category is defining playoff moment. Easy. Game one, 2001 finals, 48 points. We didn't even talk about the Ty Lue step over yet. Ty Lue <laughs> took years to recover from this. He was the guy. Every, now he's a finals winning coach. He's coaching the Clippers, but 
right. Important key thing about this, though, and this just shows how things can get just like the practice thing. We focus on the wrong things. Ty Lue, after that, goes on to sign the biggest contract of his career with the Washington Wizards because he actually played great in that. Helps them win game two by, by like, matching Iverson's minutes. He was the scout team, Allen Iverson, for the Lakers in practice, going so far as to braid his hair and to wear the arm sleeve like Iverson did. Um, Lue had a great series. Lue made money for himself that series, but we remember it as he got stepped over. Something about it that was just different. (laughs) <laughs> than anything that had happened on a basketball court. It's the right. finals and he had such disdain. Yeah, it was yeah. just like, whoa. Shea Serrano has the disrespectful, you know, that whole thing, the disrespectful dunk index and all that. It was one of the most disrespectful but legal <laughs> things any of us had ever seen on a basketball court. And it really made me think, you know, living in Boston, holy shit, Iverson's going to beat this Lakers team. Like, I really did. I was, I bought it after that. Uh, next category is market corrector or market corrected. You were asking what this means. So here's a good example. Um, Quinn Tarantino told this story in the rewatchables how he was going to cast Lawrence Fishburne as Jules in Pulp Fiction and Fishburne's agents didn't want him to do it because they wanted him to be over the on the top of the poster in any movie he made. So he ends up giving it to Sam Jackson and Sam Jackson does so well that that leads to Sam Jackson then getting the diehard role instead of Lawrence Fishburne in the, in the I think, the third Bruce Willis movie. And so he basically market So Sam Jackson market corrects Lawrence roles. Fishburne. Yeah. Right. So nobody, nobody market corrected Allen Iverson. I think you can make a case that he market corrected Isaiah Thomas a little bit. Because here's Isaiah Thomas, same terrible background. Same little guy in the, in the Island of Men, toughest, baddest motherfucker of his era for his size, gets in fights with all kinds of people, um, just known as this warrior. And then by the time we get to the end of 2000s, the 2000s, he's the joke Knicks GM. And Iverson is known as this little tough guy warrior. And he kind of stole his thunder a little bit. I think he market corrects and steals Stefan Marbury's thunder. Ooh, I like it. That's better. Remember how I'll hyped go with that Stephon one. Marbury was coming yeah. in? And they actually played each other. Georgia Tech played Georgetown early in both of their careers at Madison Square Garden, one of those, you know, November tournaments. And so it's it's Marbury's backyard, right? So all his boys are in, in the garden and they're like, Iverson, they're saying all this stuff. Marbury, you can't check Marbury. He turns around, looks at me, and goes, man, I got that motherfucker in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at how their careers played out, yeah. Now... Does Same draft, by the way. Ultimately, win because he lasted longer and, and has statues built in China. I mean, I no, I, no, it, no. It, it, he gets payback in some way. He 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 outlasted Iverson though, in a way, right? He was playing basketball long after Allen Iverson was. That's playing basketball. fair. I think we're both right. I think historically, he market corrected Isaiah, and in the moment, he one hundred percent. You're right, Stefan Marbury. Certainly, like even dating back to when he was at Coney Island. Yeah. Let Darcy Fry writes the last shot and he's yeah, one of the kids in it. And he was on the radar forever. And then Iverson yeah. took it. Then Iverson comes in, boom. Half fast internet research. I just had this quickly, just a couple of trades that I'd kind of forgotten about till I deep dove. Oh, yeah. Uh, um to Detroit, the, right? So summer of 2000, they trade Iverson the year before we they get to the, the finals. Season. And it and the deal falls apart. It's a four-team trade. Deal falls apart because Matt Geiger had a trade exception where if he got traded, um, <laughs> trade or trade or kicker, I'm sorry, right. 
he gets traded 1.2 million a year for the rest of his four years has to be added to his deal. They can't fit that under the salary cap unless he waves the kicker. And he's like, fuck you. I'm not doing that. <laughs> so the trade falls apart and we end up having the iconic Iverson season because wow. uh, Iverson, he was, he was feuding with Larry Brown at that point. And Larry right. Brown's I mean, like, there, fuck. there's some narratives where he has that season because he got traded temporarily and that caused him to straighten out his act. True. There's the placebo trade. That say that. Here was the trade. You definitely don't remember all of this. Philly gets Eddie Jones, Glenn Rice, Jerome Williams, and Dale Ellis. Now, three of those people are pretty washed up, but I guess Eddie Jones would be the piece. Detroit gets Iverson and Geiger. Charlotte gets Jerry Stackhouse, Christian Leitner, and Travis Knight. Three teams. And, and your favorite Lakers get Anthony Mason, Tony Kukoc, and Todd Fuller. In 2000? 2000. Wow. I'm trying to think what those guys do to that team. I well, think, I, I feel like you wave two of them. You probably keep Kukoc, yeah, right? It would have it, it would have messed them up. I mean, think about that. Think how good the Sixers were, and think how good the Lakers were, and think how either of those could have been disrupted. Like, there's no way those moves make them better than what that season played out. Yeah, it's hilarious because honestly, all four teams get worse. I think maybe yeah. you could argue Charlotte exchanging Eddie Jones <laughs> for Jerry Stackhouse is is a win, but yeah, it's, it's a bizarre one. So anyway, that doesn't happen. It's a great like way. That, that was worth like multiple finals trips. Probably the, the Pistons don't go to the finals in 04 and 05, right? The, the Sixers don't go to the finals that year. Maybe the Lakers don't go to the finals. Yeah. They can't flip Jerry Stackhouse into Rip Hamilton. Yeah. And maybe they have some other caps of, yeah. They, it, it's it's it, like four or five finals trips resulted from that trade not happening. It's a good what if. And I don't I don't think the 2001 Lakers are the same team with freaking oh, Anthony no. Mason on it. That would have been weird. Um, the trade when he gets traded to Denver was way worse than I remembered. It was, so December 19, 2006, Iverson to Denver for Andre Miller, Joe Smith, and two first-round picks. But the two first-round picks were late non-lottery picks. So it ended up being Daquan Cook and Pateri Kopanen. So I would wow. say it's about 22 cents in the dollar. Miller, you know, whatever. I, I think depending on what year you were either happy to have him or miserable. He's not going to be him. an all-star. Yeah. So that was that trade. And then, um, and then famously the, the Billups Iverson trade was one of the better trades of that decade where. For the Nuggets. Yeah. Denver gets Billups and makes this spirited run at, at the Lakers. And then Detroit gets Iverson basically as. Um, an expiring contract. And I remember being really disappointed with Barkley talking about the trade and what Iverson was going to do on Detroit. And, oh, I'd like this. And I'm thinking like, Iverson's done. Anyone with league pass has been watching. It's over. But you wanted to believe, right? Every time, yeah. right? All the way through Memphis, right? You wanted to hope he has something left and it just wasn't there. Well, and then we have, there's a Philly stop, which I'd forgotten about. He goes Memphis and then Philly. He, he plays 12 games and does all the thing. Yeah. All right. We're almost done. Biggest what if sliding door moment that wasn't the four-team trade. 1998 draft. They draft Larry Hughes and the next two picks are Dirk Nowitzki and Paul Pierce. So Nowitzki is weird and I think it probably doesn't work, but yeah. I think Paul Pierce would have been the perfect, perfect yeah. sidekick for him. Perfect. Wow. That, so that, that, yeah, I, I, something about it. They, they just would have worked. They yeah, just I, th worked. 
I think they would have liked each other. I think yeah. Pierce totally would have figured out how to be the Robin to the Batman and the whole thing. So anyway, uh, post-retirement, was he Barkley'd or Hondo'd? Meaning has his stature risen or have we stopped talking about him completely? I would argue he's been Barkley'd. I think we talk about Allen Iverson a lot. Yes. And in part because when he talks about the younger players, he has nothing but love for the young guys. Steph Curry, everyone, he goes to bat for them. And younger people love that because they're so used to hearing the legends just rain down and, yeah, and being on the younger guys. Yeah. And so they love that Iverson loves everyone that comes after him. And then you saw it at, I, I was there. He gets inducted in the Hall of Fame. It was nice for me. It was like, you know, the full circle moment. I, right. John Thompson chastised me for saying Iverson was going to, I had him in the Hall of Fame after one preseason game. And here he is actually going in along with Yao Ming, Shaquille O'Neal. Um, it's a nice class. And, and the love in that room for Iverson. And what was amazing was he was shook. I talked to him right after he got off the stage and he was just in a daze. He was scared up there. He said his legs were shaking. It was a huge moment for him, but he got to feel the love that everyone had for him. That room in there, everyone, they were pulling for Allen Iverson. And it was just a cool moment for me. This this is one of the top five moments of my career. I think he was in a daze, but he just says, I love you, man. And Ah. Allen Iverson told me he loved me. Like, I'm good. I don't need any awards on myself. I don't need any of that. Allen Iverson told me he loved me. I was there for his first game with Georgetown. I was there when he went into the Hall of Fame. I was there for the step over. Uh, you know, I was there for his peak, for some of his lows, all of it. And that's one of the highlights of my career was I got to be up close and basically see the whole progression of Allen Iverson from his, his first collegiate moment. I forgot to do this for what stage is the worst. Are we sure the answer was the best nickname for him? Because I say it's not. You know, at least it was a nickname. Unlike AI, which kind of became his nickname. Which right? I didn't really like either. No, but the answer the answer was one of the last nickname nicknames and, and not just KD or, you know, all these initial nicknames now, which aren't even nicknames. But the, the thing is, he had good. the nickname. We should have called him Bubba Chuck or Bubba. I have a Bubba Chuck. Was you think that was too intimate for him? Because well, that was like it, his you have close to know circle the backstory. Person? Why would he be? You know, it's, it's his two uncles, and and you know he had an uncle Bubba and uncle Uncle Chuck, and they they combined it, and that's they called him Bubba Chuck. Um, the answer could have worked. The answer's pretty headline friendly. You can get. I never called him headlines. the answer. Sixers I was just have gonna... the answer. Sixers find the answer. It's better was, than AI. I was just called him Iverson. To me, he, that was like. You know, he's like Madonna, Iverson. You just say, you almost didn't have a first name for me. It's just like, did you see Iverson last night? Never called him anything other than Iverson. I always think of the late Brian Burwell, and we would just say, Iverson. That, that was like our thing when yeah. we talk about Iverson. <laughs> Iverson. <laughs> uh, last two categories, overrated, underrated, properly rated. I think he's 20% overrated and 80% underrated. That's where I've landed. If I, at gunpoint, yeah. I'm going underrated. Well, especially the further we get away from him, he's going to be more underrated because the stats, as you you mentioned, aren't going to be kind to him. So we're not going to, you know, he's not going to stack up with other guys, you know, value over replacement player or whatever you want to call it, PERS. Um, so he's, he's, he's going to become increasingly underrated. The lack of playoff success hurts him. And he, there's reasons for that, How right? much playoff but, success was he supposed to have? Well, that's so. That's my question. Like, should he have beaten the O2 Celtics? I'm not you know, sure how many series he, he should have won. Good. It's hard to win playoff games. I always say this: it's hard to win a playoff series or a game when your best player is my height. 
I'm right around Malin Iverson's height. It's hard to win in the NBA if your best player is my height. And so I think he won more than he should have. Yeah, Chris Paul agrees with you. But like, yeah. they, you look at some of the series that he lost, they were really good teams, right? They lose to the 07 Spurs. That team was great when, when he was on Denver, on a pretty good Denver team. They lose in 05 to that Pistons team that they were never going to beat. They wouldn't have beaten them with the 2001 Sixers. So I do think he never found the right teammate. But at the same time, like you look at that Paul Pierce draft and if it had just been the two of them, it could have been different. Mm -hmm. My final pyramid ranking for him has dropped a little since my book only because some of the modern guys have passed him. I still have him in the top 50. I'm at 47. Ooh, that seems low. It's I'm not, sure you can make a good case for all the 46 you have above him. But just when I hear that number, 47, put this way. There's not 46 people that come to mind when I think of the last 30 years of the NBA before Allen Iverson. No way. Yeah, but you got a 12-year career. Or, or, or even, you know, the 60-plus whatever years of the NBA, 70, 80, whatever up to now. Um, well, I had Maravich like 80. So I'm, I'm, I'm just, look, the ranking is the ranking. I'm a, I'm, I remove all bias, everything from it. And you think like in the last 10 years, cause think how many guys passed him, right? Durant, yeah. Kawhi, LeBron, Wade. I mean, this is Iverson in a nutshell. He far surpasses the numbers. And I'm sure you have a perfectly legit case for ranking 46 people ahead of him. I'm just saying there will never be 46 people that I think of ahead of Allen Iverson. Never. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I actually think you're right. But and, and if that's, we're just talking about best careers ever, him, right? Yeah, I know. That's I mean, why he's so it's, polarizing. It's, it's Bo Jackson. It's Michael Vick. It's these guys that will never do justice if you just look at the numbers and the entries in their in their basketball reference page. If you saw Allen Iverson, especially if you got to see the raw version, young version of Allen Iverson that I got to see for two years at Georgetown, it's unforgettable. I'm going to give you the guys I have right ahead of him. Russell Westbrook. He does more things. Yes. George Mikan. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess you have to. <laughs> if you Ke insist, Bill. <laughs> Kevin McHale. Yeah. Patrick Ewing. Oh, yeah, of course. Chris Paul. I, I would think Ewing goes much further ahead of him. They, here's the thing. The, we've had 75 years of the league, though. We've had great guys. Chris Paul, George Gervin, Sam Jones, James Harden, Walt Frazier, Jason Kidd. Like, it's to be in the top 50 now versus what it meant in 1997, you're talking about 20 more awesome players. Like, it, it's a battle now to get in that top 50. You were right. But if you ask me, Harden or Iverson, who you got? And even if my criteria is I judge players on if I need to win a playoff game, which one of these guys would I rather have? And the answer to that is probably Harden, but I'm still taking Iverson. I'd, I'd rather have Iverson on my team. That's the conundrum of Harden, right? right? I'm not even sure I'd rather have Iverson on my team. Scratch that. I just want Iverson. You know, I, I, I want to see Iverson. I want him. I want him around. I want him in the league. I'm not even sure I want him or need him on my team. I don't need him repping my team. I just want Allen Iverson in the league to exist, to watch, to enjoy. If it's a game seven, James Harden's had a better career. He's had more MVP finishes, the whole thing. More yeah. All-NBAs. He's been more durable, more consistent, everything. 
I'd rather have game, Iverson. Game seven, I'd rather have Iverson. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why we do this. Jay Adonde, it was awesome to uh, see you and uh, and to talk Iverson. That flew by. We did that for like 90 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably do another. I, actually, I could probably do about nine more minutes. I don't have another 90, but it, it was so much fun, Bill. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to the Book of Basketball 2.0 podcast. Stay tuned for next week when we'll be tackling another famous player that you've heard of. Don't forget season one and season two available on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. See you next week.